Hey listeners, Harry here with another episode of Air Power and International Security brought to you by the Portsmouth Military Education Team. Today I've invited my colleague Dr Ben Jones back onto the show. Last series, to mark the 40th anniversary of the conflict, Ben told us all about how British forces retook the Falklands Islands after they had been captured by Argentine forces. Since that show has proven to be one of our most listened to episodes, Ben's back to talk us through Argentinian military leadership, both the structures and the personalities that shaped their war effort in 1982. If you haven't already listened to that episode, now might be a good time to go and catch up. In today's show, we're going into much greater detail about why Argentina failed to defend the islands and how poor leadership and command ultimately hindered their military efforts. I'll be asking Ben all about the preparedness of Argentine forces, the level of jointery and integration between the three services, and the failures of Argentine command and control arrangements. So if you want to learn how not to fight a war, then stay tuned. Hi, Ben. Thanks for coming back on the show to talk about the Falklands War. This time, we're going to be focusing on command and leadership in this particular conflict. Hi, Harry. Yeah, thanks for inviting me back. So I'd first like to start, Ben, by sort of setting the scene, outlining some of the context here. So who were the main leaders in the Argentinian military and political system? OK, yeah. So Argentina had been ruled by a military hunter since 1976. And in December 1981, there was another reorganization of the leadership, uh, which then obviously prosecutes the war in, 19, in 1982. Uh, so the president is Leopoldo Galtieri uh, from the army. We then have Admiral Anaya uh, from the navy, who is the hawk. He's a hardliner. He also had known Galtieri for a long time and effectively gives him his backing if he will then uh, agree to retake the Malvinas. Um, and we also have Brigadier General Lamidozo from the Air Force because there were all, there were three members of the of the Hunter effectively always one from each service, um, but he's by far uh, the most junior. Um, and they of course not only control the military of course, but obviously they control the country. Uh, and and the military has done since uh, 1976. In a, in another change, and uh, they also appoint uh, a gentleman called Dr. Costa Mendez as the foreign minister, and he'd been foreign minister from 1966 to 69. Um, he'd also been a prominent at the UN, um, seen Britain's negotiations there, and is recalled in December 1981, as it turns out, I think a rather disastrous choice uh, to, command the, to command the foreign office. I mean, I think they're the key, and he is the key sort of civilian advisor um, to the hunter during the, uh, during the crisis. Within this junta, then, what sort of command structure exists uh, within the military, aside from the political uh, system? Where is campaign planning done in the Argentine military? Do they have something like permanent joint headquarters that is responsible for campaign planning? Uh, In theory, yes, they did have a joint chiefs of staff, but uh, there was no joint doctrine. There were no joint exercises. um, There was no really one single joint commander maybe because of the nature of the regime, that it was military, and therefore those who were in charge of the country were also guiding military policy and making key military decisions. In terms of, well, where is the campaign planning done uh, for the invasion? Um, This is prompted by Admiral Anaya, the head of the Navy, and is largely conducted uh, by the Navy. 
uh, it's conducted by an ad hoc sort of working group. So it wasn't sort of any long-standing organization uh, which carried this out. And they were ordered to carry it out in secret um, so that Britain wouldn't find out that this is what they were planning, uh, probably for an invasion somewhere mid-1982-ish. Um, the problem, of course, of conducting uh, such planning in secret is that you, you don't discuss the planning uh, with all the aspects of the government that you could do. And therefore, certain studies, some of which indicated that it, should there be an invasion, that Britain would respond, um, were never consulted. So effectively, they're in a, in a room doing this limited planning. And it must be stated that the planning was for an invasion and an occupation. It was not for defence of the islands against a British force, because the junta simply um, ruled that out. So any contingency planning for anything other than a simple invasion, an occupation with a governor, a relatively small garrison, civilian and military staff, was never considered. It's incredible that the Argentine military failed to prepare for the likelihood or the eventuality that Britain would send forces to recapture the Falklands Islands, despite the fact the Argentinian government had evidence or had analysis, at least, that suggested that they would actually proceed in that manner. Uh, there had been, I think it was something like the planning department had indeed done a study and had concluded that a British response was likely um, the, of course, the working group in secret was just considering this very narrow option, as it were, invasion and occupation, uh, and it was doing it in secret. So it didn't consult anybody else. Therefore, there was in, potentially information out there they could have considered. Um, in, in addition, when it comes to the couple of days before the invasion, Galtieri speaks to President Reagan and Costa Mendez speaks to Alexander Haig, the United States Secretary of State, both who indicate very quite clearly that should Argentina actually invade, then they would be seen as the aggressor and they would not have American support. Aside from the sort of the long term implications, though, Ben, they obviously do capture the islands. So could you argue that this is an example or this initial invasion was an example of effective campaign planning? Uh, partially, I mean, the amphibious force which they send with the battalion of Marines, with the 20 Amtraks, you know, does successfully take the islands. Um, there are some hiccups. The uh, the unit, which is, in, which is due to be sent to Government House, is actually sent to Moody Brook Barracks, where they think the Marines will be, where in fact there isn't anybody. And therefore, the few Argentine casualties are are suffered by a small unit which then tries to take government house. But effectively, they're deploying in a battalion of Marines with 20 Amtraks against uh, what, 70 Royal Marines with little heavy weapons, no air cover, no naval support, no prospect of reinforcements. And of course, fighting in, a, in the Falklands terms, a built-up area uh, in Port Stanley. So the governor realises that after initial skirmishes that any resistance is futile and it is just going to result in more casualties. So this does achieve a key element of the plan, which is to capture the islands bloodlessly, certainly as far as any British casualties are concerned, uh, which it's felt will uh, obviously then maybe in some way provoke or lead to negative uh, reaction um, within the United Kingdom. Um, however, there was no need whatsoever to put the whole Navy to sea. So there was the amphibious task group, including the Cabo San Antonio, which is a landing ship, etc., and other ships to support her in the landing to take the islands. There was also 
um, the 25th of May, the Argentine aircraft carrier, which was also in another group. And the effect of sailing the entire Argentine Navy obviously was, was noticed even by Britain's relatively poor intelligence of Argentina at the time, and they weren't focused on it uh, in the Cold War period. Um, and therefore, Britain's response, uh, political thinking about what to do, begins prior to the invasion. The fact that Invincible and Hermes can sail only three days after the invasion wasn't just because of the invasion, it because Britain had known about this for the best part of a week. Um, so the irony is that the, the working group did the planning in secret, therefore probably did not consider all available information and expertise, but actual surprise was not achieved. Hence why you've got the Americans ringing the Argentines the day before. And a number of days before the invasion, you've got the British ambassador raising the issue in the Security Council, which was a great surprise to the Argentine ambassador in the UN, because he knew absolutely nothing about this, because, of course, why would he? All the planning had actually been carried out in secret. And again, in terms of the planning, it was run by the Navy. Had they considered the Air Force at all, there was an option to fly in C-130s to capture the airfield. Uh, which would have achieved surprise. Th they couldn't do this by the day of the invasion because the fact they'd sailed the whole fleet had alerted the British and the Royal Marines had blocked the airfield. So the Argentines managed to pull off the initial invasion, but that's arguably a relatively easy thing to do, right, given that Britain has so few defenders and capabilities stationed on the islands. But because of the mistakes and the shortcomings within the planning stage, there are various issues when it comes to Argentina dealing with Britain's response. So when it comes to the task of defending the islands, who is actually in command and what sort of plan, if any, do they have in place for this next phase of the war? OK, so they're obviously very surprised um, that, despite American rather warnings, that there, there was this British response. It's interesting that in, in August 1982, Galtieri, when interviewed, said that personally thought that a British reaction was only remotely feasible and totally improbable. And in any way, he said, I never expected such a disproportionate response. Why would a country located in Europe be so concerned over some far off islands in the South Atlantic that serve their national interest no purpose whatsoever? It seemed to me there was a, a real logic there. So there is there's an element of paralysis, I think, uh, to, to a degree in Buenos Aires. Um, so the initial a commander who had been sent was Brigadier General Menendez, and he had been sent as the governor. So his job was effectively just to govern the islands uh, with a relatively small garrison, military and civilian uh, advisors. I don't think he's the person you would put who ended up being kind of commander in chief on the islands, if I can put it like that. I don't know if he's sort of the right sort of character. There's quite a funny story that Jeremy Moore, who was the British general who eventually commanded the forces, um, had a, a photograph of who he thought was General Menendez uh, in his cabin uh, on the way down to the islands. Uh, it was only when he met him at the surrender that he realised he was actually been looking at the wrong person for weeks. Not this kind of hardened paratrooper, but someone else, because there were five General Menendezes. Um, Vice Admiral Lombardo, he was part of the planning group for the invasion. He was appointed Commander South Atlantic Theatre of Operations which all sounds very grand and sounds as though it might be some sort of, you know, he might be an overall command, but I think he was a bit more of a mouthpiece for the, for the junta, really, passing their messages to the islands. So you had effectively Menendez on the island as, well, he was going to be the governor anyway, he was the governor, 
and therefore kind of CNC. Um, you had Brigadier General Dahar, who was sent over initially with part of a brigade, and he thought he was going to be in charge of kind of operational defence and that sort of thing. Uh, but then you had another brigade sent to Brigadier General Joffre. Given that Joffre had more troops, he was then appointed land commander, ends up being Commander Stanley area when it comes to the, by the time the British land. And that's just because really, well, he has more troops than Dahar. So Dahar becomes Menendez's chief of staff. So it's not as though there was a plan of exactly who is right to command on the islands. And then when there is later reinforcement of the land garrison, you then had Brigadier General Parada, uh, who was sent, and he ends up being what was called Commander Coastal Area, which was effectively meant to be any military forces outside of the immediate defence of Port Stanley. So Goose Green, um, you know, both West Falkland, etc. Uh, although he actually never left Port Stanley um, to go to Goose Green, but there we are. Um, so there are key commanders, but the way in which they, the way in which sort of command structure kind of builds up um, is fairly ad hoc. So you've talked there about a number of different commanders uh, that are working in an ad hoc command system. But what are the main challenges commanders had to face when trying to defend these islands? In terms of the forces which were sent um, to defend the islands, if we look at the army first, um, these were sent in a rather ad hoc way. Uh, the 25th Regiment, which had kind of a, had a bit of a national status in terms of recruitment, uh, was sent first as the garrison. Um, and we ultimately end up with three brigades. Now, it's very arguable they didn't need that many troops. Um, effectively, two brigades were kind of initially dispatched uh, to defend the islands. Um, we then have on the 22nd of April, among a number of visits by military commanders, we get President Galtieri himself of going to the Falklands. He discusses the requirements with Menendez, the governor, and also Brigadier General Joffre, who's an operational effectively command of the defence. And they indicate maybe they need uh, an extra regiment, an extra battalion from him, instead of which, when he gets back to Buenos Aires, he orders the deployment of a whole new brigade, uh, three regiments of troops. And they could have chosen. Uh, for example, troops from the Chilean border, which had the best cold weather equipment, uh, were used to operating in an environment, a uh, climate akin maybe to the Falklands. But they didn't choose that, did they? No, they chose Three Brigade, which was from a subtropical climate of Argentina. So you have an issue of the suitability of the forces. This is never mind the fact that the army depends on conscription. And we're just then into the 1963, as it were, cohort of recruits. So many of the 1962 cohort who had a year's training then have to be recalled. But this is all in a piecemeal fashion. And you've got to consider as well that the decision to send a whole extra brigade is 22nd of April, which is 10 days after the British announce um, the maritime exclusion zone, the blockade of the islands. So... Sending an extra brigade, well, they could get there by air, and this was one of the big successes, really, the airlift, which the Argentine Air Force and also requisition civilian aircraft mount to the islands to get the troops to the islands. But, of course, they need equipment, and that's going to have to come by ship. So, for example, with three brigade, um, the ships which carry most of their equipment, I think some sail and then turn back, 
others actually never sail. Having dispatched the extra forces, the manpower, the uh, junta will not then acquiesce to sending uh, the merchant ships with the equipment. So they've got three brigade, have got, they've got no spades in which to dig in uh, on the islands. They've got no basic equipment, things like the barbed wire. You know, if you go to the, um, the hills around Port Stanley, they're really natural fortifications. But the Argentine didn't have any barbed wire because it was on a ship which never arrived. Um, in addition to which, there is minimal consideration, which is extraordinary, but did happen, of logistics, of how effectively having sent these 13,000 personnel to the islands, they were actually going to be properly supported. So you've got 13,000 personnel, but only 28 helicopters, of which heavy lift are two Chinooks, and you've then got two regiments on West Falkland once the war begins, have severe deprivation because they clearly cannot be supported. In terms of the Navy and the Air Force, now these are planned, as it were, to come into action once there is a landing. So, of course, the Air Force, well, there's going to be no response. So they don't plan to extend the runway to enable fast jets to use it. Uh, and the ship with the equipment never gets to the Falklands and unloads the equipment. So they actually can't do that. So they're based on the mainland. As we see later on May the 1st, there will be a considerable response. And the Navy then plan to be at sea uh, to, in some way, intercept, interdict uh, the task force when it arrives. But interestingly, um, there is no plan for other than a couple of patrol vessels uh, for any, any warships to be based on the Falklands, which would have given the British Again, more to think about. There's a clear element of risk to this, but there was no plan uh, to do that. So at least the garrison felt it had some naval, some naval support. So it sounds like a real catalogue of errors there from the Argentines, ranging from poor logistics to getting the wrong people in the wrong place at the wrong time, resulting from the ad hoc command structure you described. And all of this meant that Argentina was simply unable to adapt to the changing scenario that they faced in that they couldn't deal with the British response. You talked about the three services there independently, but how effective were commanders integrating those three services when they were actually defending the Falklands Islands? In short, they weren't. Um, and again, there hadn't been any joint exercises. There was no joint doctrine. There was no joint planning for an invasion, like even just involving the Air Force or talking to them prior to the invasion and maybe how they could uh, expedite an invasion, because this was largely carried out, of course, the planning by the Navy. And this is then carried on. So effectively, Britain is fighting three conflicts, one against the Argentine Air Force, one against the Argentine Navy, and one against the Argentine Army. Um, I think there is one occasion, I think it was about the 30th of May, when the Argentines claimed that they had uh, hit HMS Invincible, um, where there was effectively a joint airstrike involving Super 810 from the Navy uh, and also strike aircraft from the Argentine Air Force. Um, but otherwise, what we see, certainly if we look at the air component, the air element of the campaign, which was the real chance the Argentines maybe had to maybe win it or certainly inflict very serious, even more serious casualties on the British than they did. These are conducted independently. Airstrikes conducted by the Navy and by the Air Force, but very rarely doing it jointly. 
And I guess this is what you would expect. It's very hard for an organ organizations to suddenly become joint. Again, when there's no single joint commander, they did set up a joint operations center, but it's difficult to see really what this achieved. So the culture from before the conflict carries right into it. And I think on the, on the part of it as well, you then see key decisions which are made. Um, for example, after the sinking of the General Belgrano, um, Admiral Anaya ordered the surface fleet to remain in Argentine territorial waters. So a key element of, in which the Argentina could conduct the war has simply given up effectively at this stage. And never, despite pleas, say from the army in the days before the surrender, ever shows its face again and is willing to contest sea control with the British. So not only is it not joint, the whole while the campaign continues, Galtieri, even at the very last minute, is demanding no surrender, you know, fighting to the last unit and all of this nonsense. He's unwilling to commit naval and air units to support the continued defence. Wow, that's actually quite staggering how willing Gautieri was to sacrifice or potentially sacrifice the lives of Argentinian soldiers, but not for a moment risk the survivability of aircraft or naval vessels at his disposal. Now, if commanders weren't able to integrate the three services uh, in an appropriate or effective way, were there any examples of commanders, separate component commanders, utilising their own forces in effective ways? From what you've just said, the, the Navy was pretty much out of it by this point. But what about the Air Force or Army commanders? Were they able to get the best out of their services? OK, absolutely. So I think to be fair, as it were, to, to the Navy as a whole, um, the 5th Marine Battalion fought well in, the in, in one of the battles in defence of Stanley, the land component. And also the naval air arm, the Super H&Rs with the Exocet missiles and the Skyhawks, um, you know, very much did their bit, um, as did the Argentine Air Force, which, yeah. you know, had in the, in the arrangement that existed since 1969, had been told that effectively you deal with land-based or operations concerning over land and the small naval air arm um, will be in charge of maritime air power, which makes sense in theory, except, of course, you then get the Air Force has not been told to prepare for such an invasion because they weren't involved in the planning. And it's only when there's a British response is apparent, sort of a month before the fighting begins, that uh, the Air Force is told to prepare for this. So when we look at what they achieved, um, the number of ships they sank, uh, the number of ships they hit, um, you know, the individ individual units, individual pilots with the limited training that they had had with the challenges of attacking ships at sea etc um did pretty well but we can see even within that and maybe within the lack of training and planning uh some key leadership failures so the pilots are not given clear orders for example in uh, san carlos to target uh, amphibious ships the key ships here which are not capable to a large degree, things like the Canberra, the cruise liner, of suffering damage and surviving, having orderly evacuations, etc. This is going to be this is going to be difficult. Um, how on earth, as a professional organisation, you allow many sorties to take place 
where the ordinance is not fused at the correct altitude at which you have ordered the pilots to fly and to drop is surely inexcusable. Um, and there's also a failure to, to concentrate the effort. So, I mean, at times they achieve considerable um, success, but the sort of penny packets, smaller numbers of aircraft are being launched in these attacks and are not coordinated with the relatively small in comparison uh, air component in the Navy. So certain things are achieved. And I say the, the way the armed forces were made up, the lack of jointry before the war has a big effect on, on this, but some key decisions are not made or are not made clear to those who are in the, say, in the case of the Air Force, undertaking those airstrikes. Essentially, Argentina or the Argentinian armed forces were seriously unprepared for a campaign of this type and magnitude. And as a result, various mistakes and failings were made. Was this failure of command and control a failure of the system or of bad commanders? I think more the system because, I mean, we're also talking about, I'd say, the military leadership of the country. So there isn't particular questioning from civilian leadership of how the military are performing and why things are going wrong, uh, because there isn't one. So you've got this, you know, this is why you don't have military in charge, because you've got here, you see, you see this overlap of responsibilities. They're in charge of the whole campaign. The decision to invade was not taken by any civilian. It was taken by Leopoldo Galtieri, who was the president and, and the fellow members of the junta. And therefore, there's very much this, this overlap, which is very unhelpful. Uh, we can see the impact that having conscription uh, in the military has. Uh, not that that excused much of the poor leadership down to the tactical level, operational level, uh, kind of mistreatment, as we now know, of, uh, of conscripts of those in the armed forces by their own officers. But this is probably, again, a symptom of part of the system which was a key element of the armed forces since 1976, had not been thought about fighting anybody. Uh, it been, been main thought had been about keeping power and of kind of brutally repressing any opposition with our, within Argentina itself. Um, and therefore, a number of those who served in the Falklands uh, were jailed for crimes against the citizens of Argentina during the years of, of the junta. Um, I mean, there are just so many things, really, that you can see. I mean, real basics that are that 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 are you know not having not having your munitions correctly fused, accepting, say, in the case of the Belgrano, that the retaking of the islands, a key military element of the campaign, had started the day before that the Argentine Air Force had attempted to say attack ships of the Royal Navy, and yet, despite clear warnings from Britain that, you know, warships, aircraft outside the exclusion zone would meet an appropriate response. Um, she was sailing at 10 knots with no preparedness for any sort of attack. Um, and we see, look, major failures in culture here because something that would be unthinkable in the UK armed forces was that if a ship was sunk, as happened with the Belgrano, that the two escorting ships, which then a bit laughable to call them escorts, really, um, left the area and left 600 plus 
men in fortunately extremely good life rafts uh, in the South Atlantic for, for a couple of days. I mean, absolutely extraordinary in terms of where your priorities are and that anyone could order that to happen. Um, so there are major, as it were, cultural failings. I mean, real failings of basic professionalism within the armed forces, that sort of example about, you know, what are your priorities? Are they your people? Well, clearly not so much there. Are they your absolute priority? Even though there may be a submarine and you're the ship that you try to, you know, try rescue survivors, maybe torpedoed and, and sunk. And that's, that, 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 that's a risk you, you would take here. And that is meant to be looking after your people and not actually, I mean, mistreating your people. I mean, this is maybe an extreme case of failure, say, within the army, and a failure of culture. Um, but maybe maybe over all of that, the fact that, you know, Argentina hadn't fought anybody since the end of the war of the Triple Alliance against Paraguay in 1870. Hadn't fought anyone for 112 years. Who There were similar militaries with lack of military experience who won't have such massive cultural problems, as it were, that the Argentines had but they are and they and they admitted in the report that was done after the after the conflict they admitted that for such a as it were full-scale conflict against a country like the united kingdom argentina was on a number of levels just completely unprepared all right thanks ben that was really interesting i think the i mean i've, I've mentioned this in a previous podcast but the parallels between the war the falklands war in 82 and what's going on currently in ukraine or at least russia's efforts in ukraine um, are quite numerous. The lack of preparedness, the lack of coordination, the lack of logistics or logistical challenges anyway, are quite noticeable, quite apparent. I think the big difference, though, of course, is that Russia planned it. Russia actually planned the invasion. So I, I get we now see many of the cultural issues within the, the Russian armed forces and the basic failures, um, you know, sailing your flagship of your Black Sea fleet uh, up and down the line in a standard patrol pattern when your opponent has shore-based anti-ship missiles is just quite simply stupid uh, but they had planned for this whereas what the Argentines didn't do because they felt they couldn't do it because they knew as was the case when when they, they had to surrender uh, that the junta were summarily as it were removed from office and ended up in jail uh, for their for their catastrophic mistakes, was that they did not pull back. They had they had time to not reinforce failure, as in they hadn't planned for a conflict. And once it was clear that Britain was going to carry one, you know, was going to try and retake the islands uh, by force, I think maybe a civilian government, maybe that's the parallel to some degree here with with Russia. That you have a dictatorship um, who, when thinking about how to bolster their regime, decides to start a conflict or a war, um, which civilian governments usually would not do or would think twice about doing. Um, but they had not planned for it, and therefore, you know, the, the catastrophic, as it were, we now see um, failures within their system preparedness of their forces um also a recognition that if the surface fleet has to withdraw something has strategically massively changed and this garrison this number of people 
is going to be more isolated because you couldn't fly in enough rations by air. They simply didn't have the capacity over a long period. So you're going to end up with deprivation, etc., on the islands. But it's just to carry on. Maybe there is a parallel with, with Russia here. There is just until surrender is inevitable and General Galtieri doesn't order it, he gives it over to Menendez. So Menendez can surrender. That's nice of him. Um, who, who was then in an impossible situation where the leadership is blind to reality that you can't have any more. We're not going to send the Navy. We're not going to send any more, any, any airstrikes to support you. But by the way, and you're 400 miles away, completely isolated and surrounded. Hey, please fight on. Excellent stuff, Ben. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks very much, Harry. Great stuff there from Ben. It's always really important to understand and analyse military failure just as much as military success, because that's perhaps where some of the best and most important lessons can be found for future operations. Hopefully this episode is the first of many more to come on leadership and command in war. So do let us know if you're after more content like this. You can like and subscribe to the show. And if you want, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter at UOP Airpower, all one word. Anyway, thanks for listening to today's show. See you next time.